0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Martin Luther's Five Solas, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. For more information and audio content, visit us at WhitefieldsChurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. So glad you're here. Go ahead and uh, take your seats. As you're doing that, please open with me in your Bibles to the New Testament book, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin this morning a new series. We're going to take a break from what we have been doing. We've been studying verse by verse through the letter to the Hebrews. But this morning for the next couple of weeks we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. We're going to get into it this morning by reading our text which comes from 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and we're going to start in verse 16. 16. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray it this morning that we would see glorious things in it, we would see the beauty of the gospel in it, that we would see Jesus and what you have done for us. And Lord, thank you that we have access to your word, and thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. Thank you that it is your word to us. Now, may we hear it as your word, and may we receive it and treasure it, and may we, through it, treasure the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a young man who applied for a job. He had spent his life working in small towns Um, but now he had seen a job posting for really what he thought would be his dream job. It was in the big city near where he lived and so he applied for this job and he got called in for an interview and on the day of his 34th birthday, he was hired and they asked him, can you start tomorrow? We want you to start tomorrow. Well, yeah, he was hired on a Saturday and the next day was a Sunday and they wanted him to start on a Sunday so he said, Well, sure, yeah, I can start tomorrow. Now, during the interview process, he had mentioned to them that if they hired him, he had an idea that he wanted to try out. It was something that, as far as he knew, had never been done before, but he he thought, I have this concept, I want to try it out. So they said, yeah, sure. So the next day, on that Sunday, the day after his birthday, he got up early, he got ready for work, he walked to the building where he worked. He entered that building. And when the time came, he walked up the stairs and he took his place in the pulpit. You see, he was hired to be a pastor. And he opened his Bible to the very first page of the very first book of the New Testament the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 and he read these words this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham and starting that day at that moment for the next six years he would teach verse by verse through the entire New Testament it was something which until that time had never been done before that we know of he went in the church He stood in the pulpit, and verse by verse, he taught through the entire New Testament. Each Sunday, he would pick up where he left off the week before. He would read the text, he would explain it, and he would show the people how it applied to their lives. And that simple practice of teaching through the scriptures and hearing the word of God and its message for us today, it absolutely transformed those people. It seems like such a simple thing, doesn't it? To read the Bible, to hear it, to have it explained, to have it applied, and yet it was incredibly revolutionary. It changed those people. In fact, it didn't just change them, it changed their city, it changed their country, and ultimately, it changed the world. And I'm not being overly dramatic about that. Do you know who that man was? The year was 1519. The man was Ulrich Zwingli, and the city was Zurich, Switzerland. Only 15 months before that, something else had happened. Another man in another country had done something which also didn't seem like such a big deal at the time when he did it. That man was Martin Luther. And on October 31st, 1517, he posted some thoughts on a bulletin board. That doesn't sound like that big of a deal, right? The church bulletin board. The church bulletin board and that time was kind of like what Facebook is for us today. You post anything and everything that you feel like posting or sharing with anybody who might want to read it. Right? Like if you lost your cat mittens and you wanted some help uh, tracking mittens down, you posted on the church bulletin board. If you are offering guitar lessons and you want to make a little extra cash, you post it on the bulletin board. Right? So Martin Luther was a monk, and as a monk, he was also a professor at the university in that town where he lived, which was Wittenberg, Germany. And on October 31st, 1517, he posted on the church bulletin board. And what he asked for was a scholarly debate a scholarly debate for others from the university to participate in, and he wrote down the topics that he wanted to discuss. Now, this was nothing out of the ordinary at all. In fact, it was absolutely normal. I mean, in any university, even today in Boulder, constantly having scholarly debates. Hey, let's get together. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about the environment. Let's talk about whatever. And we'll have a scholarly debate about it. It happens even today and it was common then too. In fact, Luther wrote his post on the bulletin board in Latin, not in the local language of German, which everybody spoke, but you know, somewhere around 2-3% to of the population only spoke Latin because they were scholars. And so this wasn't a debate for everybody, it wasn't a discussion for everybody, it was specifically an invitation to, a, to hold a scholarly debate at the university for the scholars to discuss some ideas. And in response to that, you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing actually happened. Actually, seriously, nobody showed up. It's like when you schedule a party and you say, hey, at 5 p.m. on Thursday, I'm going to have a party at my house. And then you get the house ready and nobody shows up at all. Nothing happened. Nobody showed up for the event that Martin Luther had, had called together. But... Some people saw his post, and they told some other people who told some other people who didn't really like what he was insinuating through those questions that he was asking and these topics that he wanted to talk about. You see, at that time, in that part of the world, there was only one church, it was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I want to say this before we go on. The Roman Catholic Church of today is very different than the Roman Catholic Church of that time, and a big reason for that is because reforms took place after that, even within the Catholic Church, which were a result of these events that I'm about to tell you about. Now, in the church at that time, they had gotten away from what Jesus taught and what Jesus had intended the church to be about, so much so that it was completely different. It was completely indistinguishable from what jesus had taught and what, what the bible taught and what jesus was saying there was a ton of corruption going on there's a ton of strange teaching going on that had kind of come in over the years and one of the worst examples of this was something called indulgences so indulgences were basically certificates or tickets that you could buy in order to have your sins forgiven And so, or the other way that they could be used was they could be used to help your deceased loved ones get out of purgatory. Now, what is purgatory in case you don't know? Purgatory is this place, the church taught that there's a place where souls go to be punished for their sins until they can be cleansed of their sins through punishment, and then they can go to heaven. And this would take millions of years. I'm not exaggerating. This is what they taught. Millions and millions of years of punishment for your sins that you committed in this life, and then once you were sufficiently punished, then you could go to heaven. But what they taught with indulgences is that if you give the church money, then, you know, the church can give you kind of a ticket, and that will, you know, reduce the time that you spend in purgatory, or even better, it can reduce the time that grandma spends in purgatory suffering uh, for her sins by a couple million years, you know, and depending on how much money you get, I mean, she might just get out right now. Now, all of this stuff about purgatory and indulgences, if this seems weird to you, it absolutely should. It should seem weird to you because none of this is found in the Bible. So where did these ideas come from? And then why did anybody even go along with this in the first place? And why didn't anybody ever speak up about this? Well, first of all, here's where these ideas came from. They came from the idea, the correct idea, by the way, that sins need to be paid for. That when you sin, you are accumulating, so in a way, a debt before God. And I think that every person, I do believe this, every person deep down knows that there is such a thing as right and wrong and that all of us do things sometimes that are wrong. And there is a God to whom we will have to answer for the wrong things that we have done in this life. But there's another factor involved in this whole thing, and that was the factor of greed. You see, the leaders in the church at this time had become corrupt There was a lot of money involved in this and a lot of power, and they were using religion as a way to manipulate people so that they could get and accumulate and keep money and power. And so these teachings about purgatory and indulgences were really a great way to do that because... Everybody loves their grandma. If you tell them that grandma is suffering in flames right now, but if you would just be willing to cough up a little bit of your hard-earned money, then you can help grandma out. Who wouldn't do that? Everybody would do that. What kind of you know, cold-hearted person do you have to be to not help out grandma and get her out of flames if you can? And while you're at it, Hey, you might as well pitch in some money for yourself because who doesn't want to have a get out of hell free card? So the way that these things, they would sell these things is that they sold them through indulgent salespeople. And these indulgent salespeople worked on commission. And you know how that goes. So they would go from town to town And they were very much motivated to sell as many as they could because the more that they sell, the more that they make. The towns were interested in having them come and sell indulgences because the town would get a cut, the indulgence salesman would get a cut, and then ultimately the rest would go to Rome. They had some skin in the game. They were motivated to sell as much as they could even though they were promising something that they knew was totally made up. Now you might say, this is ridiculous. Like how did it Ever happened that anybody believed this? How did anybody fall for this? Well, the reason is simple, and that brings us to what we're here to talk about today, and that is this that at this time the church had taken the Bible away from the people. That's how this all happened. Now, that's almost hard to believe. The church took the Bible away from the people? I mean, isn't the church always shoving the Bible down people's throats? Well, not well enough, apparently, at that time, right? Like, they could have afforded to shove it down people's throats a little more. Now, why would the church take the Bible away from the people? It kind of seems like church should be doing just the opposite. They should be wanting people to have the Bible. Now, the reason is, again, it comes back to power and control. It's, it's incredibly sad, really, when it's tragic. The fact is, by this time, the church had gotten so far away from the Bible That if people had read the Bible, they would have said, hey, this is weird. Like, this doesn't match up at all. Like, none of the stuff you're doing is in the Bible. And so the church kind of didn't want people to read the Bible for that reason. So what they did is they told the people, look, hey, the Bible is this very ancient, very confusing, very complicated book, and there's no way that you could ever understand it. So you just need to trust us. We know all the stuff and we'll tell you what you need to know. See, the church at this time was afraid of people reading the Bible, and they had actually gone so far, they made an agreement with the government, and the agreement was this, that it was illegal. It was illegal to have a Bible in any language other than Latin. See, people at different times had tried To translate the Bible into languages other than Latin another reformer his name was William Tyndale William Tyndale translated parts of the Bible into English and he got burned at the stake for doing so can you imagine that this that we hold in our hands if you have an English Bible or whatever Bible you're reading if it's not Latin that was an incriminating act now here's what's crazy nobody in the world spoke Latin at this time. Like, it was a dead language. The only people who spoke Latin were people who worked for the church. Furthermore, the Bible wasn't even written in Latin to begin with. It was written in Greek, especially the New Testament, the Old Testament in Hebrew. And so the, the whole purpose of keeping the Bible in Latin was to keep people from reading it. And maybe you ask, well, wasn't there anybody who read Latin and they read the Bible and they saw through this stuff and they stood up and took a stand against it. Wasn't there anybody? There were. But every time they did, it didn't end well. For example, there was a man, a priest named Jan Hus. We call him John Hus in English. John Hus lived in the city of Prague in the early 1400s. He was a priest, he learned Latin, and he read the Bible. And the Bible changed his life. And it opened his eyes. And John Huss, in the early 1400s, he stood up and he took a stand and he said, all this stuff about indulgences is totally wrong. It's not from the Bible. The Bible says that forgiveness is not something you can buy. Salvation is not something you can buy or earn. Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. All you have to do is believe that and receive it. It's grace. Furthermore, John Huss said that the Bible should be translated into the common languages and given to the people so they could read it for themselves. And because of this, you guessed it, he was arrested and he was executed. And that just sent a message every time this happened to everybody else. Tread lightly. Watch what you say. And so when Martin Luther posted his topics for debate, immediately red flags went up and word got out. Because what Martin Luther wanted to talk about was the fact that he had actually read the Bible And none of this stuff was in there. None of this stuff was in there. And so he posted this paper. It's now known as the 95 Theses because 95 things that he wanted to talk about. On October 31st, 1517. That's exactly 500 years ago this Tuesday. 500 years ago this Tuesday. And that event is considered the beginning of the Reformation. The Reformation was a return to the Bible. A return to the bible it was about putting the bible in the hands of the people and letting them read it for themselves and it had an incredible transforming effect on everyone who did it all of these people i mentioned so far i mentioned four or five people so far all of them that i've mentioned they had one thing in common and that's this they actually got their hands on the bible and they read it and it changed their lives See, the reason that Martin Luther had started reading the Bible in the first place is actually also a very important story. Martin Luther, as a young man, he had two instances where he almost died, kind of near death experiences. One was he cut his leg with a sword on accident and almost bled to death. Another time he was caught in an electric storm and almost died. Another one was that he had a friend in school who died, who was close to him. And so all these events together made him very much aware of his own mortality. Maybe you've, you can relate to that. You've had friends or family members die and it suddenly makes you aware of how fragile this life is and how there's no guarantees any of us could die at any moment. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the statistics on death, but they're not very encouraging, right? Like 10 out of 10 people die. It's like somewhere around 100%. And so the question is not, will you die? The question is, when will you die? It's not an if, it's a when. And Martin Luther was acutely aware of this fact, but there was something that kept him up at night. What kept him up at night was that he was plagued by this question of what is going to happen to me after I die? What will happen to me when I die? Because he knew that he was not a perfect person, but he wanted to get right with God. He wanted to be forgiven of his sins. He wanted to know that when this life is over, he would be He would be embraced by God. He would be welcomed into God's loving embrace rather than cast away into darkness and judgment forever. And what the church told him was, yeah, maybe you can be forgiven of your sins. Here's a list of things that you need to do in order to be forgiven of your sins. And they gave him a list. Do these things. Pray these prayers. Do penance. Be punished for the sins that you've already committed. And then maybe God will forgive you and maybe you will go to heaven, but no guarantees the church also offered kind of a fast track for people who were really serious and wanted to be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven. You could become a monk or you could become a nun. Just Quit your job, come into the monastery, and be a, a monk or a nun and, and spend your life in prayer and in confession of your sins. And so Martin Luther did that. He quit his job. He left his career as a lawyer and he became a monk. Why? Because he desperately wanted to be forgiven of his sins, and he wanted to know that when he died, he would not go to hell. And so as a monk, Martin Luther spent hours every day in prayer, and in confession, and in beating himself, literally with whips, to punish himself for his sins. But no matter how hard he tried, he could never, it was never enough. He could never do enough because, see, he recorded even sometimes that it would plague him. He would pray. He records one time. He said, I prayed for six hours, and I felt, okay, now I'm okay. But then at the end of that six hours, he was filled with a sense of pride because he had prayed for six hours, and then he was right back to where he started. Great. Now I've got to beat myself and confess my sins again. And then he would pray, and then he would have a bad thought about somebody, even while he was praying, and he just could not seem to escape this, this sin in his life. It, it was, seemed to be so deeply entrenched within him. See no matter how hard he tried, no matter how much he prayed, no matter how much he confessed and beat himself, it was never enough. And he says that at this time, he became increasingly resentful towards God. In fact, he goes and he says he got to the point where he hated God. See, because he understood that he could never live up to the standard that God required of him. He could never live up to this standard of perfection. In fact, no one could. And he came to this conclusion, they began to think, God is a cruel tyrant who demands something from us that we cannot give, and then he judges us for not being able to do what we can't do in the first place. And it was at this point of exasperation, having tried everything, that Martin decided to do something that really nobody did at that time. He decided to read the Bible. See, monks had access to the Bible. But even so, very few of them actually read it. And so many of them had bought into the idea that the church had been saying, hey, look, this is an ancient Book. it's confusing it's complicated there's no way that you could ever understand it but Martin was curious and he had a lot of time on his hands so he said I'm just gonna go for it I'm gonna open up the Bible I'm gonna see what it says for myself and I'm gonna see if maybe there's something in there that can help me with this problem of sin one author uh, I heard he put it this way that Martin Luther was like a man with a disease who is desperately looking for the cure for the disease that he himself had so he said okay might as well try the Bible So he started reading the Bible, and he found something in there that absolutely astonished him. First of all, he found that it was a book that wasn't confusing and hard to understand like he had been told. It was actually incredibly clear. And one day, as he was reading through the Bible, he stumbled across something that absolutely changed his life. He referred to it as his breakthrough. He was reading Paul's letter to the Romans. And right there in the very first chapter of Romans, he read these words. He read these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And when he read that, it was like a double take. He was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute, what did that just say? The righteous shall live By faith? Is this saying what I think it's saying? And as he thought about it, he realized it actually was saying what he thought it was saying, that to be right with God, it doesn't come through what you do. It doesn't come through penance and beating yourself and all of these things. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot earn God's favor. It comes through what Jesus did for you, and you receive it by faith. And then he kept on reading in Romans, and he realized that's exactly what it's saying. And then he read other places, like in the Gospels, where Jesus declares with his dying breath, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done for your salvation, it's done, I did it, Jesus is saying. He read in Ephesians where it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He read in Galatians where it says that forgiveness, being right with God, if that is something that you have to earn or that you can earn then jesus died for no reason at all and martin was like oh my gosh that's exactly what i've been doing i have been trying to earn my salvation i've been trying to earn forgiveness here i have been punishing myself to pay for my sins and all the while the message of the gospel is that jesus Already did it for me. He did what I cannot do. He earned my salvation. He was punished for my sins. And yes, God demands something from us that we cannot do. He does, but he is not a cruel tyrant. Rather, he is a loving father. He is a brother. He is a friend who knew that I couldn't do it. And so he came down and he did it for me on my behalf. What a glorious gospel. What good news. What a good God this is. Luther called it his breakthrough. It changed everything. It completely changed the way that he thought about God. It completely changed the way that he thought about himself. And he writes that from that moment on, it was as if a door to heaven had opened up before him and he was born again. And he says he was filled with a great sense of joy, but it was joy tinged with sadness. Joy tinged with sadness. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling before. He was so joyful, but yet he wondered, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? Why didn't they tell me this? If this is the message that's in the Bible, why isn't this the message that's taught in our churches? He thought about all those wasted years that he had spent taking pilgrimages, doing acts of penance in vain attempts to work his way into God's favor when it turns out in the end that the currency of heaven is faith in Jesus and what he did for you. And he was filled with this sense that everybody in the world needs to know this. Everybody needs to hear this. Everybody in the world needs to know that this is what the Bible says. And anything that's being taught that is contrary to the Bible, it needs to stop being taught. And this is what we call, this led to what we call the Reformation. And the Reformation was a return to the Bible, which led to a rediscovery of the gospel. And the Reformers, they summarized their core beliefs into five slogans, which they called the five solas. Sola means only or alone in Latin. And here's what they are. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. These were the conclusions that they came to from reading the Bible. They said, this is what the Bible teaches. And this morning, our focus is on the first of these, sola scriptura, only the scriptures. Here's what sola scriptura means. It means that the Bible alone is our highest authority. The Bible alone is our highest authority. It doesn't mean that we only take wisdom and knowledge and truth from the Bible and ignore other sources of of wisdom and knowledge and truth in the world. That would be foolish. But when it comes to what we believe and how we live, there is no higher voice, there is no greater authority than these holy scriptures. Sola Scriptura means that nothing outvotes the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible. Nothing outvotes it. So if church councils say one thing and the Bible says another, who wins? The Bible wins. And for us today, the bigger issue is probably this. If our culture and our society says one thing, but the Bible says something else, then who do we listen to? Who do we submit to? The answer is we submit to the scriptures. Sola Scriptura means the Bible alone is our highest authority. This is something that's actually taught in the Bible. God has a lot actually to say in the Bible about the Bible. And he wants us to understand what it is and why he gave it to us and how it's supposed to function in our lives. And so what we're going to do with our remaining time this morning is take a look at that text I read this uh, earlier at the beginning. And I want to share with you four important things about the scripture and why it's important for us today. Okay, the first of these is this. Scripture is God's word to us. We, the text we read this morning was from 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is one of two letters that Paul the Apostle wrote to one of his protégés, a younger man named Timothy. Timothy, we know about him from other parts of the Bible, like in the book of Acts, we read about Timothy. And here's what we know. Timothy was a young kid when his mom became a Christian in one of the churches that were started by the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. So Paul the Apostle goes on this missionary journey called by God preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus, start churches. One of these people who hears the gospel and gets saved is the mother, and she has a young son named Timothy. Well, a few years later, Paul came back to visit their church and see how they were doing. Timothy was a little bit older now, probably in his teens, maybe late teens. And he asked Paul, hey, you know, I'm not doing anything. Can I join you and go on your missionary journey? I'll just help you out, I'll tag along. And Paul said, sure. So for the next couple of years, Timothy tagged along with Paul, and he helped him out on his missionary work. And after a few years, Paul asked Timothy to become the pastor of one of the churches that he had started in the city of Ephesus. And these letters that Paul wrote to Timothy were letters that he wrote to give him advice about how to be a good pastor, how to lead the church well. But there's, there's another interesting thing about this letter, 2 Timothy And that is that this is the last letter that Paul wrote before he died. This is the last thing he wrote before he died. And I'll explain why that's important in just a second. But check out what it says. I'm going to actually go back a couple verses to verse 14. Paul's writing to Timothy, and here's what he says. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The sacred writings that Timothy grew up with were the Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and Paul's encouraging him to continue in those scriptures. But then he says something else, which is interesting. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, whereas at first Paul says, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the scriptures, the holy scriptures from your youth, now he says, all scripture is God breathed. Now, what's the significance of saying all scripture? The significance is this. As I said, this was the last letter that Paul wrote. And by this time, almost all the books that we have now as our New Testament, had already been written and they were being distributed amongst the Christians. They were being read and they were being studied in their churches. And so when Paul says all scripture, I want you to understand, he's not just talking about the Old Testament. He's also talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the whole Bible, if you read the New Testament, here's what you'll see. You'll see that the apostles absolutely understood that God was using them in their time to write a New Testament of holy scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. I mean, just give you a couple examples. I've got the notes for you if you follow along in a Bible app. But here are uh, here's a few examples. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter refers to the writings of Paul as scripture. That's interesting. Paul actually refers to his own message in one place, 2 Thessalonians, he refers to it as the word of God, his own message. In, In 1 Timothy, Paul takes a quotation from the gospel of Luke, and he refers to it as scripture. And then there are other times where Paul writes a letter, two times where he writes a letter, and then he tells the people in the letter, make sure that you copy this letter, that you distribute it, and that you have it read in the churches." You see, these apostles understood that God was doing something in their day. He was working through them to bring about new scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. What Paul is telling Timothy is this. He's telling him, stick to the scriptures. Stick to the scriptures because the Bible comes from God, not from man. It is a God-inspired book. In fact, it is not just inspired, but it is breathed out by God. See, it wasn't just that these books were inspired in the sense like if you see a, good, a great work of art and you say, wow, that's really inspired. No, this is saying that these words were breathed out by God. And what that means is that the Bible is no ordinary book. It is the very word of God to us. You know, there's no other book like the Bible in so many ways. Let me just give you a few examples. The Bible, first of all, is not one book. The Bible is a collection of books, 66 books in totality. It's written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,600 years, roughly. It was written on three continents in three different languages, and most of these writers never met with each other. They never got to sit down at the table and make sure they were on the same page, and yet there's an incredible unity. There's an incredible consistency to it, and it has been proven accurate and reliable historically and archaeologically. And so the Bible is unique also, not only in those ways, but in the fact that it has survived the way that it has survived. Archaeologists continue to unearth older and older documents and manuscripts. And what they show, the more that they find, is that the Bible has not changed over these thousands of years. Now, that makes sense, actually, when you think about it for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you think that these are God's words to you, well, then you're probably going to want to be pretty careful about preserving them. But secondly, you think about it from the other perspective, that if there is a God who created us and who wants to speak to us and communicate to us, if he created the world, don't you think he's probably capable of also keeping his word preserved and uncorrupted over time? I think so. But let's go on to the second point here. The second thing about the scriptures that I want you to know and that this text shows us is that anyone can access God's truth in the Bible. Now in the Middle Ages, the, the church took the Bible away from the people and it told them this is a confusing ancient book that you can't possibly understand. And no question, there are some confusing parts, right? There's some confusing parts. And that's why we have people who study these things, you know, even on the PhD level. And so, but for the most part, the core message of the Bible is extremely accessible to anyone who will pick it up and read it, even to a child. And in fact, that's what we see here in 2 Timothy. He says, Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures. You've read them, you know them. And now, as a pastor, Timothy, your job is to teach people the Bible. Psalm 19 says this It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is true, making wise the simple. In other words, the Bible isn't just for pastors and scholars, a simple person, can pick up the Bible and access God's truth in it. And this is what the reformers believed and what they fought for and what some of them even died for, for the fact that people should have the right to be able to read the Bible. Whoever you are, you can access God's truth in the Bible. Third uh, point here is this, there is a spiritual dynamic that takes place when you read or hear the word of God. There's a spiritual dynamic that takes place. Paul says to Timothy in, in verse 15 of this text, he says, the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says in verses 16 and 17, he says, the scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproving, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So there are two dynamics at work that he talks about when you read the Bible. First of all, there's an instructive dynamic. And secondly, there's a spiritual dynamic. On the one hand, you're getting information, you're learning. But on the other hand, because this is the word of God, there's a spiritual dynamic that takes place as well. The Bible has a lot to say about this actually, about this spiritual dynamic that takes place when you engage with the Word of God. For example, Hebrews chapter 4, we studied a couple weeks ago. It says this, the Word of God is living and active. God actively works through His living Word in our lives as we take it in. The Bible says that the Word of God does several things in us. It builds faith faith in us. So as we hear it, as we read it, it builds faith in us. Another thing it does, it cleanses us mentally and spiritually. It changes us and transforms us from the inside out. Another thing, it renews our minds. Also, it strengthens us spiritually. It strengthens us emotionally. And the Word of God, above all, it imparts life. And so the best thing we can do is to continually take in the word of God. And as we do that, God is doing a spiritual work in our lives, which is more than just intellectual information. It is spiritual transformation. And finally, the thing you need to know about the scriptures is that the central message of the scriptures is the gospel. The central message of the scriptures is the gospel. The Bible tells us a lot of things about who God is and about who we are and about the world that we live in. It is full of wisdom. It's full of history. But above all, the Bible tells a story. It's a story about God, and it's a story about us. It's a story that has a beginning and an end, has a climax and a resolution. And this story is all about what God has been doing and is still doing in order to save us and to make right what has been made wrong. And ultimately, this story is about Jesus. And this is what Martin Luther and these other people we've been talking about today, this is what they saw when they read the Bible. They realized this is what the Bible's about. It's about Jesus. It's about the good news of Jesus and how God is saving us through him. The fact is, you cannot save yourself. Martin Luther found that out, kind of the hard way, right? He found out by trying as hard as he could to earn forgiveness and to work his way to God. And in the end, he found himself exhausted and frustrated and resentful and hopeless. He realized that even at our very best, we are more sinful than we can even imagine. Even if you were to quit your job and become a monk and pray for six hours every day and confess every little thing, every errant thought, it would never be enough. But here's the thing, the good news of the gospel is that you are more loved by God than you could ever dream. And because he loves you so much, he sent Jesus to be your savior. He came, Jesus came and he lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you should have died and because of what he did for you, you can be forgiven and you can be embraced by God forever. And I just wanna encourage you with this as we close and as we go. Since we have the very words of God, let us be people who pay close attention to it. Let us carve out time to read it, to hear it, to study it together and individually. Let us be people who think about it, who meditate on it, who memorize it. What if you did that every day? It's totally doable and it's totally worth doing. These are the words of our King and they're here for us to take. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes forth from the mouth of God. What that means is that our spiritual life is maintained by daily nourishment, regular nourishment in the word of God, just like our physical lives are maintained by daily regular nourishment with food. Without that nourishment, we become weak and unhealthy. But finally, remember what Paul said to Timothy. The Holy Scriptures can make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'll just finish with this. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross? Have you done that? Have you put your foot across the line and put down your yes and said, yes, I give my life to you. I receive what you did for me. I believe it. I receive it. I trust in it. If you haven't done that, or even if you're like, I don't know, maybe I have, maybe I haven't, if you're not sure, I encourage you to do that today so that you can have the peace and the confidence and the joy that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven and that God, when he looks at you, he is well-pleased and that you are right with him. Now, on the other hand, if you have done that before, I wanna encourage you to also do that today. I wanna encourage you to embrace the gospel again anew. I want to encourage you, again, to put your faith in Jesus and what he did for you and find hope and joy and rest in the gospel. Do that today. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for this glorious truth. And we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us through your word and you have preserved your word for us, even through perilous times. And Lord, thank you that we have it, how precious it is to us, but thank you, Lord, that in it we see the good news of the gospel. I pray for anyone here today. Well, I pray for all of us. Wherever we're at in this journey, whether we're, we're, whether we're just beginning or whether we've been on this journey for a while, Lord, may we embrace the gospel today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.